Today's scripture comes from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand the proverb and the saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You may be seated. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father, uh, we need you today. Uh, We need your word. Lord, would you instruct us by it? Would we learn through it? And uh, would we do so in such a way that it would bring you glory and Uh, lead to our good and for the good of our city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is John. I'm part of the team here. And uh, it's good to have you with us as we start this new summer sermon series. Uh, As you've just heard over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs to see what the Lord might teach us through it. And I, for one, am excited uh, for this series uh, because I don't know about you, But I find myself often in situations where I realize I really need wisdom and I really don't have it. I really need wisdom and I find that I don't have it. And it's something that doesn't seem to get easier as I get older. In fact, um, even as I get older and hopefully a bit wiser, it seems like uh, the situations that I find myself in are just a bit more complicated. Um, I always feel like my level of wisdom doesn't keep pace with my level of responsibility and the things that I'm facing. So as a dad, um, I just feel like I I figured it out. I finally figured it out. And then you have a second one and you realize they're completely different and everything that worked with the first doesn't work with the second. And then you have a third one and you realize again, or they hit another developmental stage. And just when you thought you were wise enough, you're not wise enough. And you need more wisdom. And I feel like that also as a pastor. I feel like just when I figured it out, just when I have enough wisdom to counsel someone or to help someone, I feel like I face another situation that's just a bit more complex, just a bit more gray, difficult to navigate. And maybe you feel the same. Maybe that's how you feel right now. You feel like your level of wisdom falls short or struggles to keep pace with the responsibilities or the decisions that you have to make in your life. And if that's you, then I've got some good news for you. We're studying the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. In fact, the verses that we've just read, uh, they are a statement of intent. The book of Proverbs begins with a statement of intent. What is the purpose of the book? And it says, doesn't it, that it is for the young and for the simple to gain wisdom. And so if you're young this morning, or if you're simple this morning, or if you're both like me, this is the book for you. This is the book where we're going to find wisdom. In fact, if you're old and you're wise, uh, you can't just take a nap 
Uh, it says, doesn't it, that even the old and the wise from this book can increase in learning. And so if you're sitting here and you've got a few more gray hairs than me, you can learn something too. This is going to be good for all of us. And so here's what I want to do as we begin this series. I want us to answer two questions. I want us to look at two very, very simple questions, but I think it's going to put us on good footing uh, as we approach this series. Two questions are this. Number one, what is wisdom? And number two, how do we get it? What is wisdom and how do we get it? Simple questions. Okay, what is wisdom? What is wisdom? You may or may not be familiar with the story, but in the book of 1 Kings, which is a book in the Old Testament in the Bible, there's a story of a young man called Solomon. In fact, this is the same Solomon who, who wrote most of the book of Proverbs, as we've just heard uh, read. And, and the story goes with Solomon that he was a young man, and even as a young man, um, he, he found himself with more responsibility. You see, Solomon was the son of King David, and David, when he dies, uh, passes the throne on to Solomon. And so Solomon finds himself taking on, even as a young man, the throne, taking on the responsibility of governing the people. And just after Solomon becomes king, we read in 1 Kings 3 that the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. God says to this young man with this new responsibility, what do you want? What is it that you want from me? And whatever you ask, I will give you. Which sounds nice, doesn't it? And Solomon's famous reply, if you're familiar with it, in light of his youth and in light of the fact that he has this new responsibility as king, he asks not for riches and for fame, maybe something that we would ask for, but he asks for this more valuable treasure. He asks for wisdom. He asks for wisdom. And so we read on, that God does indeed give him this wisdom. And this wisdom leads not just to his flourishing, not just to his success, but to the success and the flourishing of the kingdom that he is set over. In fact, it doesn't lead just to the success of Israel. It leads to peace with the other nations. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what is it exactly that God gave to Solomon? What is it exactly that God gave to Solomon? Well, helpfully, in our text today, Solomon, in describing the intent of the book of Proverbs, is also going to help expand our definition of wisdom. It's going to help us understand it. And so from verse 2, he says this, that the purpose of the book is to know wisdom. And then he expands it, and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, each of the words that I highlighted there, they're a different Hebrew word that gives us an insight into what this word wisdom means. They're going to help us give shape to and insight into our understanding of wisdom. But rather than going through each of the different Hebrew words, because this is not a lecture, this is a sermon, I'm going to summarize it for us in two main categories. The first category is this. Wisdom is an understanding mind. It's an understanding mind. 
If you've been uh, following tech news, which some of you have been, I'm sure, uh, you'll be familiar with the conversations that have been circulating around artificial intelligence, around AI. Now, I realize in saying that, that some of you have switched off and some of you have finally switched on. Um, because AI is very interesting, isn't it? Um, and it's quite concerning, isn't it? And uh, there's lots to say about it. But if you're a real nerd, you've been following this for a little while now, maybe for years. Um, but if you're a regular person like me, then you became more aware of it in December this past year, right? December this past year, uh, there was a free preview of something called ChatGPT that was released to the public. And uh, ChatGPT, for those of you that don't know, um, or if you've lived under a rock for the past year, um, it's an AI chatbot which explains it. You understand. No, the point is it helps you write content. And so what you do is you ask it questions, you give it prompts, and then it uses artificial intelligence to, to source and curate and create an answer for you. And I was talking to someone the other day who, um, I won't name any names, but they came up to me and they asked if I use ChatGPT to write my sermons. I was furious. No, I, I could have taken it two ways, right? On the one hand, this person could be saying that my sermons feel like they curate the world's insights. <laughs> On the other hand, I sound like a robot. Um, now, I want to be clear, I don't use ChatGPT to write my sermons, but it's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Could the pastor one day be replaced by a robot? I think I'm safe. I think I'm safe. I don't know about the rest of our staff, but I think, <laughs> I think I'm safe for now. Uh, no, we live in a unique time in history, don't we? We live in an interesting time in history when we have such access to information, such great access to information. And yet, as we, as we look at our so-called advancements in society, we might also ask ourselves the question, is there more wisdom around today than there was in previous generations? Is there more wisdom around today than in previous generations? Has the increase in our access to information increased our collective cultural wisdom? T.S. Eliot, who's a 20th century poet, he suggests actually that the opposite might be true. In a famous poem called The Rock, he says this, Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Where is the wisdom that we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Eliot, I think, captures something very insightful here. That rather than wisdom growing as we have increased in our access to information, wisdom seems to be, seems to be lost among it all. Now, why am I saying all of this? Well, because I think Eliot implies here something important. He implies that there is a distinction between wisdom and mere knowledge. A distinction between wisdom and mere knowledge. And I want to suggest that Proverbs and the Bible agrees with that. You see, when Proverbs uses the word understanding or the word knowledge, as it did in our text today, it has a very specific type of knowledge in mind. For Proverbs, an understanding mind isn't simply about our intellect. It isn't simply about our intellect. It's not simply a quantity of knowledge, but rather a quality, a distinct quality of knowledge. 
If you've been following the development of AI, that's the bridge that they're finding difficult to cross, right? It's easy to collect information, but it's difficult to find quality. Why is quality tricky? Well, quality is tricky because it requires a value judgment, doesn't it? Requires a value judgment because quality requires not simply a collecting of information, but a sifting of information. It requires a discerning between what is true and what is false. But more than that, it requires a discerning between what is good and what is evil. And that's what Proverbs means when it talks about an understanding mind. It's not just talking about what is, although it is talking about what is. It's also talking about what ought to be. About what ought to do, what ought to be. In fact, this is the case in the story of Solomon. When we look at the story of Solomon, when Solomon asked for wisdom, this is what he says. He says to God, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. That I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people. So, what is wisdom? Wisdom is an understanding mind. But what is an understanding mind? It's the ability to discern between good and evil, between what is right and what is wrong. And so it means not simply knowing what the paths there are to take, but what path we should take. So for the teachers, it's not simply about learning a curriculum. It's about knowing whether or not a curriculum should be taught. And for the medical professionals, it's not simply about having the ability or the knowledge to know how to do a procedure, but knowing whether or not it is morally responsible to do so. If you're working in business and, and your aim is to make money, it's not simply about knowing how to make money, but how to do so without losing your soul in the process. Christ City, wisdom is first and foremost an understanding mind, a mind that discerns the moral landscape of life and is able to determine what is black and white in a world of gray. That is what an understanding mind is. So first, it's an understanding mind. But second, it's also a skillful discipline. It's a skillful discipline. Let me explain what I mean by that. As some of you uh, might remember from a previous sermon, you may or may not remember, but I'm a white belt in jiu-jitsu. Um, I don't like to brag about it. I've only mentioned it twice in the last two sermons, but I'm a martial artist. Get over it. Um, for those of you that don't know, what this means is I, I went to jiu-jitsu for a year, got beaten up, found out my body can't take it, and left with the only belt that they give you when you start. Um, but what, my, what some of you might not know is that I actually know a lot about jiu-jitsu. I do. Like, I'm bragging now. I know a lot about jiu-jitsu. I know about the history. I know about the athletes. I know the moves. I know the holds, the techniques, the guards, the transitions, the grips. In fact, the way that I'm speaking about it now, you realize that you don't know about jiu-jitsu, but I do know about jiu-jitsu. And if you do know about jiu-jitsu, then you know that I know about jiu-jitsu. <laughs> I have watched hours of YouTube instructionals and tutorials 
But here's what you realize quickly about martial arts and sports and most of life. You realize that there can be a huge chasm between knowing and doing. There's a huge chasm between knowing and doing. That there's a distance between our head and our hands that can be greater than we think. And that's true of wisdom. It's true of wisdom. We know, don't we, that knowing the right thing to do is hard enough. But doing the right thing is even harder. We can know what is right and not do what is right. But wisdom in the Bible is not simply knowing the right thing, but having the moral courage, having the character, the strength of character, the conviction to act on it, to act on it. It's not just wise thinking. See, in our text, it's also wise dealing. In fact, the word wisdom and the word instruction in verse 2 there in the Hebrew implies a skillful discipline. A discipline, not something that we simply think about, but something that we act on. And as we act on it, we grow in our understanding. We grow in our skill. You know, there's a type of knowing that we feel in our bones, not just in our head. You know that. The picture then is not just of understanding the world, but having the, the skill, the practiced skill, the discipline to navigate the complexity of the world. We might then say that wisdom is not simply knowing about life. It is the art of living well. It is the art of living well. The art of living in such a way that leads not just to our good, but for the good of those around us. As with Solomon, whose wisdom was not just for his benefit, but for the benefit of the nation and the nations around them, so too wisdom is that thing that we have and we practice and we grow in that benefits those around us. It's not just good for us, but it's good for our neighbors. It's good for our family. It's good for the city that we live in. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds like the sort of life I want to lead. That sounds like the sort of community that I want us to be. The question is, how do we get it? How do we get it? How do we get wisdom? If you study wisdom literature and different wisdom traditions, there is actually a, a kind of agreed upon understanding of how you access wisdom. There's a sort of universal understanding of how you access wisdom. Now, of course, wisdom can be acquired through observation of the world, in which we gain understanding by looking out in the world and seeing how the world works. And in fact, Proverbs, as we'll later find out, it affirms that to an extent. And wisdom can be acquired through living life as we live and as we fail and as we learn and as we grow, as we try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. We, we kind of acquire wisdom that way. And Proverbs is also going to affirm that method as well. But fundamentally, wisdom traditions, including Proverbs, have all proposed that in order to acquire wisdom, the first thing you need has two steps to it. There's two parts to it. The first thing that you need is someone else. The first thing you need is a person. It's a person, someone else who knows the world, someone who is further along the journey than you are, someone who has experienced the world and understands the world, a guide as it were. We see this all throughout the wisdom traditions, a, 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 
a parent or a teacher or a guru or a guide, someone who is wise, who, who passes it on and passes it down. The first thing that we need is we need a person. The second thing that we need is we need a posture. We need a posture. We, we, we place ourselves under the authority of that person in order to be receptive to their wisdom. We posture ourselves to this person in such a way that we, we listen to them, we, we submit to their instruction, we imitate them and follow them, we entrust ourselves to them in order to be receptive to what they have. We place ourselves at their feet. And so the question of wisdom isn't first, how do you get wisdom? The question of wisdom is, from whom do you get it? Who do you get it from? It's a good question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Individually, it's a good question to ask ourselves as a community. Who do you get wisdom from? Who do you go to for life advice? That thing that you're facing right now, who is it that you have turned to? For your career advice, for your family advice, advice on your finances, on your future. Who is it that you turn to? Now, I want to suggest that this is where we often get stuck. And in fact, I want to suggest that our culture particularly gets stuck here. Because I think for many of us, we don't know who to turn to. We don't know who to turn to. There's an interesting guy called John Verveek. John Verveek is a professor of cognitive science in the University of Toronto. And he's gained some notoriety recently for a series of online lectures uh, that he did called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And Verveek, he, he's not a Christian, and so some of his solutions to the problem we wouldn't agree with. But I think his diagnosis of the problem is actually excellent. It's excellent. This is one of the things that he says. He says this, People know where to go to find information. But when we ask, where do you go for wisdom? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know. People grab from here and grab from there in an autodidactic, which means a sort of self-directed or self-taught way, in an often fragmentary fashion, which has a tremendous capacity to exacerbate self-deception. He's describing our culture and what Vivek is saying is similar to, I think, what T.S. Eliot perceived, that the more information has not brought us closer to wisdom. In fact, with so many opposing notions of the good, so many opposing claims to what is true and good, the question of who do we trust has become harder and harder. And I, I want to suggest, especially for those of us who spend more and more of our time on the internet, So what do we do? What do we do with such a plethora of options proposing to us what the good is? Well, Vivek, I think, insightfully sees that what we do is we end up self-directing rather than receiving direction. Do you see? As a result of having all of these options, what we do is we no longer posture ourselves as students at the feet of any master, but we ourselves become the master and we become the arbiters of what is good and what is true. We pick and mix. We see it in our city, the sort of spiritual soup that we live in, where we pick and mix teaching from here and there, ultimately saying that we are the authority. So if we don't like our teacher, we just find one that agrees with us. 
If we don't like what our doctor says, we just find another one that agrees with us. If we don't like what our pastor says, we stay and we're faithful. (laughs) You see what this does? This is the crisis of meaning. This is the crisis of wisdom that we have in our culture, that we have essentially short-circuited our access to wisdom. We have cut off our access to learning. It reminds me actually of the book of Judges where it says this. There's a repeated refrain in the book of Judges. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, when there is no authority, what happens is everyone becomes their own authority. Feels familiar, doesn't it? What's interesting about the book of Judges is it's contrasted to 1 Kings. It's contrasted to the reign of Solomon. You see, under Solomon and under his wise rule, Israel flourishes. If you know anything about the book of Judges, it just leads to chaos and violence and destruction. So, who do we go to? Who can we trust? How can we know where to go? Well, the book of Proverbs is going to propose an answer for us. In verse 7, it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word beginning here shouldn't be understood as simply the starting point from which we move on from, but rather the foundation upon which we build. Bruce Waltke, in his commentary on the book of Proverbs, he says this, What an alphabet is to reading, notes are to reading music, and numerals to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge of this book. What he's saying there is the key to accessing wisdom in the book of Proverbs, and I would say more broadly, is this notion of the fear of the Lord. The foundational principle to mastering the art of living is contained in this idea of the fear of the Lord. And so the pressing question for us, Christ City, as we begin a sermon series on the book of Proverbs should be this, what does it mean to fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Now, I'm guessing that for many of us who have been around in church for a little while, we've heard of this concept. We've heard of this phrase, the fear of the Lord. In fact, it's used 20 times in the book of Proverbs, and it's used just under 200 times in the Bible. And so you've probably come across it at some point in your spiritual journey. But I'm also going to guess that for many of us, we've struggled with it. We've struggled with it, and maybe you still do. And I understand because the fear of the Lord feels a little bit abrasive, doesn't it? It feels a little bit like there's some dissonance there because the word fear only really has negative connotations. And then we try and reconcile the word fear with what we know about Christianity, what we know about Jesus and our relationship to him. And it's difficult to measure up. But as Proverbs suggests, the fear of the Lord is the key to understanding the art of living. And so we, we can't just leave it in the side. We have to try and engage with it. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? 
I want to I want to try and help us here by first talking about why fear, the fear of the Lord is misunderstood. Why it's misunderstood. Bruce Waltke again in his commentary on the book of Proverbs, he says one of the problems that we face is that the fear of the Lord is often taken out of its biblical context. It's taken out of its biblical context. He says that trying to understand the fear of the Lord by, by pulling the words out of their biblical context and then picking it apart and trying to interrogate it would be like trying to explain to someone what a butterfly is by taking the word butter and fly and then going with it. Do you see how that leads to confusion? Here's the point. You can't get close to what the fear of the Lord means Unless you consider how it's meant in this particular context, to this particular people, for this particular purpose. And what happens, Christ City, is when we abstract it, we take these words and we take it out of its biblical context and we pick it apart. Here's what we end up doing. We end up finding uh, two equal and opposing errors in our understanding. The first error is this. We end up having a concept of God who is too small to be feared. We end up having an idea of who God is who is too small to be feared. What I mean by this is we have a small and a safe and a sanitized perspective of who God is that is not informed by the Bible but is informed by us and our culture. And so we say something like this, fear surely can't mean fear. Fear, fear can't mean fear. It must mean something like this. It must mean... Um, Respect or, or admiration. Christ says, when, when we read our Bibles, is that what we find? Is that what we find when we read through the Bible? As God reveals himself, what do we, what do we see? When, when Moses goes up the mountain, when Jacob wakes from his dream, when he sees the ladder to heaven, when Isaiah sees the throne room and he hears the angels cry, holy, 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 how does he react? Not with respect. He reacts with full on his face fear. That is what happens when we encounter the living God. Bible scholar Douglas Stewart, he puts it like this. He says, the fear of the Lord is enjoined throughout Scripture, demanding that God's people stand always in awe of him. Appreciate his supremacy and greatness. Fear the consequences of disobeying his will and not treat lightly any aspect of their covenant relationship with him, lest the consequences be severe or even fatal. Attempts on the part of some in modern times to define fearing the Lord as merely respecting him distort the biblical evidence. It distorts the biblical evidence. Stuart here is warning us, and I want to warn you, Christ City. Not to make God small and safe and sanitized. Not to make God small and safe and sanitized. That the fear of the Lord is not simply respecting God, but it is standing in awe of Him. It is a holy reverence as we acknowledge God as God, the one who created heaven and earth, who holds everything in His hand, including our own lives. The first mistake we can make is that we can have a God who is too small to be feared. And that's not the God that we meet in the Bible. But there's a second error that we can make. 
as we abstract it from its biblical context. The second error we can make is this, that we can think of the word fear apart from the revealed character and nature of God. We can think of the word fear apart from the character and nature of God. Let me explain what I mean by this. There's an important detail in this text and in the Bible, actually, that is often overlooked, and it's this. In our text today, you'll notice that it doesn't say the fear of God, but it says the fear of the Lord. And it's an important distinction. It's important because of this. The word Lord in your Bibles, as you read through your Bible, you'll see the word Lord, often capitalized, L-O-R-D, It refers not to the abstract idea of a deity, not to the abstract idea of God, but it refers to Yahweh. It's a translation of the word Yahweh, the the personal, self-revealed name of God. And so we're told here not to fear an unknown God. Not to fear an unknown God, we're told to fear the God who has made himself known to us. And so the question we need to ask is, who is this God who has made himself known to Israel and ultimately, finally, to us? Who is this God? He is the God who is holy, 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 yes. But he is also the God who says he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the God who is just, yes, but he is the God who also reveals himself to be merciful. He is the God who does judge sin, who does hate sin, who is wrathful to sin. But he's also the God who would come to us finally in the person of his son to be judged in our place in order that our sin might be dealt with and we might be reconciled to him. Christ City, the fear of the Lord is to be understood in light of the nature and character of God. And we see in the nature and character of God revealed in Scripture fully and finally the nature of Jesus Christ. The God that we fear is the one who made a way for sinners deserving judgment to be adopted as sons and daughters receiving forgiveness. Do you see that our relationship to this God, not an unknown God, but the God who has revealed himself to us, our relationship to him transforms that word fear so that in the Bible, the fear of the Lord and the love for God are often synonymous Charles Bridges puts it best, I think, when he says this, the fear of the Lord for the Christian is not an abstract, impersonal term, but it is this, it is that affectionate reverences by which a child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Christ City, this is the fear of the Lord for us, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus It is now transformed to a posture of a child to a parent. We now have the posture of a child who recognizes that God is our loving Father. But you know what we never forget? That our loving Father is Almighty God. Almighty God. This is the fear of the Lord. Here's the question. Why is that the beginning of wisdom? Why is that the beginning of wisdom? Well, do you remember what I said we need to obtain wisdom? We need a person and we need a posture. 
We need a person and we need a posture. We need someone who knows and understands the complexity of life. We need someone who can be trusted to know what is good. Among all of the opposing notions of what the good is, we need someone who actually knows. Who knows what would lead to fruitfulness. Who knows what would lead to a flourishing life. We need someone who knows what the good life is. And then what we need to do is we need to posture ourselves under his authority in order to be receptive to that wisdom. In order to be receptive to all of that knowledge and understanding, we need to listen to them. We need to submit to their instruction. We need to follow him. Christ City, this is the fear of the Lord. That we reorient our lives in worshipful submission to Yahweh. That we come before him humbly, knowing that he is the source of all wisdom. That we truly say in our lives, not my will, but your will be done. That's why we follow Jesus. Because he is Yahweh incarnate. He is the Lord before us, presented to us, that we might know and see wisdom. We know now that we can go, when we have questions about life, to the author of life. We know that as we approach Jesus, as Paul says, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ City, it's why Jesus doesn't stand as one among all the teachers in our lives. We don't grab a bit of Jesus and a bit of someone else. But he stands apart from them. In fact, he stands above them. In fact, he stands as the measure by which we judge all other teachers. And so here's the question. What is it you need wisdom for today? What is that thing that you're facing this week that you need wisdom for? The first and foundational question, the first port of call for us as Christians is to ask ourselves the question, do we truly fear the Lord? Have we humbled ourselves to his authority? Have we sat at his feet? Have we sought his counsel? That means opening up his word. It means speaking with other Christians who also fear the Lord, who are also seeking his will. Have we opened up his word? Have we listened to his word? Have we obeyed his word? Christ said, you know, the book of Proverbs, it begins with an explicit invitation. An invitation to receive the wisdom of God. In the same way that God was pleased to offer Solomon wisdom, as Christians, we too are now invited to ask him for what he is happy to give us. In James 1, it says this, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. You know what? He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. It will be given him. God is inviting us today to ask him for his counsel. But you know what? There is an explicit invitation, but there's also a little implicit warning in, the, in our text today. There's a little warning. And the warning is this, that if we don't fear the Lord, if we don't humble ourselves before him, then we will cut ourselves off from wisdom. We will cut ourselves off from understanding the sad irony of the book of Proverbs is that the main author of the book doesn't end up taking his own advice. If you know anything about the story, Solomon 
turns away from God and it leads not just to his downfall, but to the downfall of the nation. And so Christ City, would we be a people who fear the Lord? Would we be a community who fear the Lord? Would we sit at his feet? Would we live according to his ways for our good and for the good of our families and for the good of our neighbors and for the good of our city? Amen? Amen. Let's stand as we respond.